Welcome to the WebMonkey Podcast, brought to you by the Wiretech team. My name is Jake Spurlock. I'm your host, and I wanted to welcome my guest today, Zach Tolman. Howdy, everyone. Zach is the lead engineer here at Wired, um, and it kind of has an awesome storied history of web development. I'll let him introduce himself. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Not to put you on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't prepare my, my bio, Jake. Um, Yep, so got into web development um, probably nine, ten years ago or so. Um, was just the individual who liked to deal with computer problems at a certain organization. And one thing led to another, got into web development, uh, really enjoyed it, which led me to learning to do much more with programming. Um, and uh, was pursuing a completely different career and stumbled into web design uh, primarily just because I loved it so much. And one thing led to another, and I'm, I'm here now. A mutual friend of ours, Helen Hosandy, she might call Zach the doctor for some other reason, but uh, no, we won't go into that. Um, so today we've got a few things to talk about, but most important thing to talk about here on this podcast as always, is what did we have for lunch on Thursday? <laughs> somebody uh, somebody left a comment last week that said, oatmeal raisin cookies, where's the tech news? And this is hard-hitting journalism, my friends. Hard-hitting journalism. So what was lunch yesterday, Zach? Uh, it was a Korean noodle bar. Um, I think we had vermicelli noodles. Was that correct? Um, I don't think they'd call them that in... Uh, I thought that was what it was uh, on our menu, at least. Oh, really? Okay. I thought that's, yeah. So they were super good uh, with some barbecue, Korean barbecue chicken. Oh, it was so good. Yeah. Um, and lots of little uh, extra things you could put on top, some carrots, cucumbers, what have you. Yeah. It's what fuels the tech team and yeah. the editorial team and everything at Wired. The tamari sesame sauce was just amazing. It was a little bit sloppy, though. Oh. It was. Uh, I think we both put a little too much sauce on. Yeah, I put like two scoops, and it yeah. was it was dripping. And we ended up wearing a lot of our lunch. To be clear, though, at the end of that meal, I looked down at my shirt, and I was like, I can't believe I'm not wearing this sauce. It was all over the table, <laughs> but it was so good. Anyways, that's what you come to Wired Web Monkey Podcast for, is our hard-hitting I think journalism. We're, we're done here, right? Yeah, we're done, right? Uh, we're okay. done, okay. See you next week. At some point, I think it'd be really fun to branch out and um, try out other cafeterias' lunches. So if you're in the Soma neighborhood, um, GitHub, Microsoft, uh, Optimizely, uh, Docker, Fastly. Docker, Fastly. And um, we'd, we'd love to have you... Um, on to talk about the cool products that you have, but as a prerequisite to that, we need to have lunch over at your cafeteria. So, anyways, uh, you can reach out to us at Why Is Jake on Twitter for an introduction. All right. Uh, so first, some follow up from last week. Uh, WordPress 4.2 dropped last week. We talked about it, and then as soon as it dropped, major vulnerability was released to the world. Zach, do you want to talk to us about it? Yeah, this was a crazy uh, vulnerability that um, that came up. Um, essentially took a form of a cross-site scripting attack, a, uh, a persistent cross-site scripting attack. But it was kind of clever how um, it was executed. So the problem was that uh, users can enter comments in a typical WordPress blog as long as it's you and you're enabling comments. And a user could drop in a comment that would would get clipped by MySQL by um, 
basically putting in a comment that's too big for MySQL. Uh, I think it was, what did we find? It was long text. Yeah, um, it was long text. Yeah, it was. So if you put in something that was bigger than long text, or I think it was smaller than that. I think that was a post content. Anyhow, uh, if you exceeded the size of the field for the content, um, it would get uh, it would get um, clipped. Problem then is that the validation sanitization of that content happened before it, it got put in the database. So you actually were putting stuff in the database that wasn't sanitized properly for the database. When it's pulled back out of the database, it wasn't handled in one particular place, allowing you to craft a clever comment that would allow you to execute a cross-site scripting attack. Yeah, the, the general gist being if you had, say, something that was 64 kilobytes, like 64,000 of the letter A, and then at the end of that, you put in something like some JavaScript or something like that, it could then bypass all of that and be saved into the database. And then on output, it could do certain malicious things. So um, a patch was issued. And um, we'll put a link to the uh, diff on the on GitHub. but. Basically, uh, they, they did the security team for, uh, for WordPress. They did a few different things. They, they went in and they said, depending on the type of table that you're saving data to, they put in a, a few hard limit checks before the save was done. And if, you're, if the type of content that you were trying to save exceeded that hard limit, it would just bounce off and not let you save. So in the case of like post content where you're saving WordPress, uh, like a WordPress post, uh, the number is kind of cool. We were looking at this yesterday. It's six. Let me get my uh, things in the right way here. It's four billion two hundred and ninety-four uh, million nine hundred and sixty-seven thousand two hundred and ninety-five bytes, which is two to the thirty-two minus one. <laughs> so, and so, that equates to roughly four gigabytes of data. So, if you're doing that, that's a pretty big blog post to yeah. begin with. So. It's going to take people a long time to read. <laughs> yeah, it's a really. I wonder what four four billion characters. I wonder how many paragraphs that yeah, is. Yes, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. So, anyways, kind of kind of interesting exploit um, for automatic. And it was yeah, it was. It was um, I should say I shouldn't say automatic. I should say WordPress. <laughs> yeah, let's not make that mistake, Jake. There, there is a difference, and Zach and I both understand the difference so yeah and i think it was good the, the wordpress security team seemed to respond very quickly uh get a patch out right away um i know there was some kind of he said she said going on about when um when wordpress actually heard about this and when they responded to it but um you know i think as as the wordpress security team tends to do they respond pretty quickly when they know that there is a um, an exploitable vulnerability. Um, the particular individual who found this vulnerability posted about this very publicly, had a proof of concept, and you know, it was it was extremely fast. Probably what within twenty four hours or so. Oh yeah, um, it that it was it was patched. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the cool thing is since. Uh, WordPress has invested so heavily in their automatic updates, they could they could quickly patch this for people. Um, they only will do automatic updates for um, for security releases. Um, they won't do it for, I, I guess if you're talking semantic versioning, for minor releases. Uh, so people who had updated to 4.2 already would get the security release automatically. So you're, you're not exhausting people in terms of these upgrades so they didn't have to go and do this manually twice they'd only have to upgrade to 4.2 and then they would get the security update after that yeah which reminds me of like a long time ago like probably eight or so years ago 
like manually updating over FTP and I wiped out my entire WP-content folder, which is what WordPress holds all of your uploads and your themes and your plugins. That was a really sad day. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tough. And then, <laughs> I mean, for something like this, it would be really frustrating, right? You you upgrade to 4.2. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of new features, a lot of new code. So WordPress updates tend to go pretty smoothly. However, there tends to be conflicts with plugins and themes and what have you. So if someone kind of goes through that process of updating to 4.2, and have maybe, I don't know, a frustrating experience with a plugin or whatnot, it, it burns them, right? And then they don't want to go to 421. But fortunately, we have this process in place that allows them to get that upgrade really quickly and they don't really have to do anything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this brings us to some people that are listening may not be familiar with cross-site scripting. It's often abbreviated to XSS in um, like a web, like blog posting and news updates and stuff like that. Zach, could you give us a little overview of what cross-site scripting is and how it works and, you know, the general mode for what happens to enable that? So a cross-site scripting attack uh, basically um, is a type of attack where someone can inject script onto the page. And it can happen in a number of different ways, and they can allow the page to act in ways that um, the website owner does not want. So uh, the classic attack is a reflected cross-site scripting attack where you would put something in the URL bar. That value is read by the application and output on the page. So uh, a typical case would be like a search input. Um, So in WordPress, you you typically have S equals something. Um, And in most WordPress search pages, that S value will be reflected back in the page. So it might be reflected by saying something like in the page, search, uh, you searched for whatever, yeah, your search term is. And if that value is not properly sanitized, it could allow for executing script on that page. Um, other examples might be a persistent cross-site scripting vulnerability, and that's where there's some data that's stored elsewhere that's printed to the screen. So we just talked about one, the WordPress 4.2 uh, vulnerability that was patched in 4.2.1. Um, by saving a comment to the database yeah. that it contains a malicious script. And then when it was echoed back to the screen, it was not properly sanitized, allowing for a, a, an attack vector there. Um, and what's kind of cool about cross-site scripting attacks is a lot of browsers have uh, have XSS auditors now, and they're well actually they've been around for a long time. Um, yeah, Internet Explorer actually introduced the yeah. concept, um, but they will try to protect you against these. As an application developer, you should never bank on that. Um, but it does a lot to help uh, application developers who who just miss something or are otherwise naive to uh, protecting their application against these cross-site scripting attacks. Yeah. So one of the mantras that I've always followed, um, and I have a mug that's kind of <laughs> that bit the dust the other day, and I was really sad about it. But this is printed on the mug. It says, "Sanitize early, escape late, drink often." So um, when you are taking in data, you should sanitize it early in the process. You should always assume that there's super malicious code that you're ingesting. This is this could take the place of like saving comments, saving post content, um, anything that's going to go into a database. Sanitize early, and and to be clear too. It doesn't have to be going into a database, like in the context of like a search parameter. That's not going into a database uh, to be saved, but it is like maybe going against query arguments or something like that. So you should always sanitize that. And then when you're going to print to the page, you should be escaping as late as possible. You can escape many times along the way, but escaping is 
removing unwanted characters, unwanted tags, things like that, and you should drink often because we're web developers and you need to stay fueled. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most part, important part of that yeah, uh, that absolutely. mug. Yeah, and it's it's an important concept. Um, obviously, we've um, you know we look for it in our code base, and there's times where we've missed it and caught it, and um, you know you never know where that input's coming from. Uh, I think one of my favorite examples is when um, someone placed a JavaScript, uh, just a, just a script tag in their a text record for their DNS, and then there was a who has, who is site that would read in these text records, so you can look up a domain, you can see what all their text records are, all information about this particular domain, and it would read in those records and uh, print them back to the screen. In this case, it printed this script tag back to the screen, allowing it to uh, execute. Uh, And fortunately, the individual who did it wasn't doing anything uh, particularly malicious. They they defaced the site, um, but I think uh, did it in a humorous way that just drew attention to this vulnerability and it is now been patched um, but they basically made the page do the Harlem shake <laughs> it's amazing it's yeah. really really cool I have here I want to talk about an overly complicated way to build a live blog um, one of the things we do here at Wired is we are often doing live blogs that's kind of a, a mainstay for a gadget site is to attend different events whether they be like Apple keynotes worldwide developer conference Google IO even events like CES or comic-con Wired has done live blogs before, and and I'm not saying we are exclusive to this. You know, <laughs> I remember like in college, like forever ago, like sitting at my desk reading Mac rumors religiously, waiting for updates on whatever WWDC keynote was going on back in the day. And so, um, Zach and I, we've both been here not very long, and the old way that Wired would do this was kind of fascinating to me. I thought it was a really cool process. Um, Wired, in addition to like being published by WordPress, at one point we had a couple of cake PHP apps that were built specifically for handling uh, remote data. So what would happen is, in the case of a live blog, um, our editors would go to an event and they would use Tumblr to capture the, ev- um, the event as it unfolded. And full credit to Tumblr, Tumblr is an amazing, has an amazing way to publish content and they really looked at post formats as a great way to uh, narrow content into certain types of buckets, whether it's images, galleries, links, quotes, uh, chats, uh, regular like blog posty content and different things like that. And their mobile apps um, follow the same paradigm. They, they've really honed in on you want to publish a certain type of content. So let's make sure publishing each type of content like that is done in a really elegant and nice way. So for our editors, they show up to an event, all they need is a smartphone, and they can just live blog away. So what would happen is CakePHP, this this app that we built um, a long time ago. Well, before you even get to the CakePHP part, uh, as I understand it, Tumblr, yeah, 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 Tumblr yeah. was introduced initially just because we didn't have a live blogging solution. Mm-hmm. So we would actually use Tumblr uh, to add all of our content and we would point users yeah, yeah. to Tumblr. Totally, totally. So we would spin up a new a new Tumblr blog for the particular event and just have users go there. It was a quick way to solve a, a problem mm-hmm. and it worked well. But then that kind of gave us this, this interesting legacy that we've worked with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now instead of, <laughs> you know, like anybody that's in publishing knows you want to have eyeballs on your site, not over on Tumblr 
not on Twitter. You know, you want to be on your site. So we introduced this. And my understanding is it, it was originally built as a Java app using Groovy on Grails, then ported over to CakePHP as a way to consume the, via the Tumblr API, consume all of the posts, um, build a, a JSON object, which I always feel funny saying that because it's clearly um, JavaScript object notation is a JSON yeah. object, but whatever. We don't have to talk about it's that. It's redundant. It's redundant. It's from the Department of Redundancy Department. Um, um, and then it would publish a static JSON file, which jQuery would read and then publish stuff onto the page every five minutes or so. And so it was a cool way for the editors to publish. Users would come to the site and they would see infrequent updates, but the updates would come every five minutes or so. It was almost faster just to press reload than to try to expect to see anything from the home page. So uh, fast forward to May or uh, March 1st, and we needed a way. We were doing some server migration, and we wanted to drop all of our PHP apps. We wanted to drop all of this kind of legacy infrastructure that we had in place for these live blogs and rebuild it we think in a little smarter method, in a little smarter way, um, but still have the ability to use Tumblr for the content aggregation and then move all of the publication over to WordPress for the aggregating of the content and also the display of the content on the front end. And to add to the complexity of it, we launched our new site on May, or uh, sorry, March 1st. Everyone in the company was basically working on this project to get this out. And then Apple announced their Apple Watch event. And it was, I want to say, was it March 9th? Something like I that. Say it was like right really, after this. Really and we, we didn't have any plans for a live blog for a little while. So, you know, we were going to get our, our redesign uh, launched, do our bug fixes, anything that kind of came up after it was live, and then refocus on the live blog. But all of a sudden... Here we are, we just launched this redesign, and now we need a live blog eight days later. Yeah, so anyway, so we knew uh, a couple of the requirements were we knew that we needed a way to fetch the content from Tumblr. So one aspect of the project was um, uh, a cron job that we set up to fetch the content from Tumblr. The second aspect of it was we needed a way to render that content on the front end. And so... For that, we use React, and we'll talk a little bit about, more about that in a second. The third part of this is we needed a way to publish the JavaScript that we scraped from Tumblr, because we didn't want the users to hit Tumblr directly. Tumblr uh, limits you to their API will only return 20 posts at a time. So we needed a way to like fetch it and then create a larger object that contained every post. In the case of the Apple Watch, like. What did it end up being like? 200? I say 220, something 220, around there. 220, something yep. like that. 220 updates. Larger events would be like three, four, 500 even. Um, so we needed a way to like fetch the content, aggregate it, and then publish it um, not as a static JavaScript file. In our case, we use the WordPress JSON API to build a much bigger data object that would contain all of the blog posts. And so the third part was building this data representation, and having a way to invalidate, (laughs) 
basically cache hard cache and then invalidate and serve new content without bringing our entire site down. Well, it's common that a live blog will bring a site down, right? There's so yeah. many requests against the site, uh, it can be hard to scale. And I think that's been the typical experience with a live blog. Um, I, I think people are figuring it out more nowadays, but the previous experience used to be, well, I'm going to go to this live blog and I'm just going to watch it for as long as it stays up and get as much information as I can, but fully expect this to stop working and then move on to the next one that maybe is working a little bit better. Um, so that was a concern of ours, obviously, especially after we just launched. We were on a new infrastructure. Our Essentially, our application was rewritten on top of uh, WordPress uh, entirely, and we needed a way to, to scale this very quickly. Yeah. So the, as far as the first part, we using some WordPress methods and stuff like that, we, we found a way to like quickly ingest the content. So the, the first part... We, we build up a cron task that will go, it'll figure out how many posts we need to query for, and it'll paginate and fetch all of those requests and bring them back into WordPress. One of the challenges with doing this in PHP that we quickly ran into is when you, let's say our, our goal time that we set was 15 seconds. We want to be able to update, we want to be able to update the content every 15 seconds on the front end and ideally be able to serve new content every 15 seconds with our cache. And so when we have like, let's say 20 pages, um, PHP doesn't run asynchronously. It runs these remote requests one at a time. So it'll say, if we know that we have to paginate 20 requests, we'll say, okay, send off one, wait for the response, send off the second, wait for the response, send off the third, and so on and so forth until the entire data object comes back. We save that to the database. Um, if we were um, at one point, I prototyped this all in Node, and Node's really cool because it'll do it all asynchronously. And you could set out a request and say, "Well, I want to get four thousand posts, you know, break that into you know, eighty or whatever pages, and it will just go ding, 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 and come back super fast because it can do these network requests all asynchronously." Someday, should we move to like HHVM or you know, into a Node infrastructure or something like that? this wouldn't be such an issue. But for us, we were seeing a backlog in requests. Not a backlog. We never, we didn't get to the point of having a backlog, but that was definitely uh, a concern that we had in setting this up. And there's other ways we can, we can um, do a, a sort of a mimicked async way in PHP. We can do some non-blocking requests. And there's some libraries out there now in PHP yeah. that will support it. It was just not something that we were able um, to get set up initially. Uh, and what we were seeing is each of these requests were taking anywhere between 100 to 200 milliseconds and sometimes even longer if the request wasn't cache. So we'd make these requests and, uh, you know, if you can do basic math, you can figure out you, you at some point you're going to hit that 15-second limit. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what we wanted. We wanted to be able to at least generate that JSON file that we were going to cache very heavily uh, within 15 seconds. And in most cases, we were doing this within, you know, a few seconds. Uh, it, it just... You know, as we needed to make more requests, it got harder and harder to to beat that threshold. Something that we can easily solve with uh, asyncing those requests. But this first iteration, as we were watching this live blog go, we didn't have that in there, and so we were worried about uh, you know how much our bloggers were going to be live blogging. Yeah, absolutely. What we what we found in doing it though is we were watching the requests come in. We we were watching the live stream and our live blog at the same time. And we were seeing updates to the live blog ahead of announcements as they were being made on the video. And so they're obviously probably running on a delay. 
and they're also probably you know network latency and stuff like that. So there's no there's no need to assume that the the live blog stream that we were watching was actually in real time. But I think for the end users, it was a it felt it was like a, it. It was yeah. yeah, it was perfect. It was like right on time. And the way that we made this work very quickly, um, and it, we were able to scale this up very very fast, is um, we actually use Fastly as our edge cache, and it's been a fantastic product for us. Um, you know, we're not we're not endorsed by them or anything. <laughs> it's just actually made our lives easier uh, from an engineering perspective. Um, what we were able to do is we had some special rules for that particular. Uh, JSON file. We were using the WordPress uh, JSON API uh, to generate the JSON file, and when that would be cached, we would cache it for only 15 seconds. It would have a TTL of 15 seconds, but we would set a special header on that file called stale while revalidate. It's something that Fastly supports. There's a uh, RFC for stale while revalidate to be supported by browsers, but it's not at this point. So what the stale while revalidate does is uh, if a request comes to the file and it finds that, okay, it's past its TTL, it's now expired, rather than kicking off a request to update that asset, the user will be served the old outdated asset. So they'll just continue moving on like normal. But in the background, it'll kick off a request to go update that asset and cache it at the edge. Uh, and this does two things for us. First of all, the, the user that, that hits the asset when it's past its TTL, they get an instant response still because the, the edge cache will serve them the old outdated content and then they can move on like normal. In this case, that's just our React code um, making an uh, Ajax request against that JSON file. Uh, they'll see that there's no updates and they'll just move on and they'll come back and make another request 15 seconds from then. Uh, but the second thing that it does for us and probably the most important for scaling is that it uh, allows us to avoid a stampeding herd problem. So when when we get multiple users that are requesting that file, it only allows supposedly one request to come to our back end to update that file. And in this case, since we have to issue all these requests against the Tumblr API and generate it, you can imagine if we get a stampeding herd against this file, it would really back things up. Our, we would run out of TCP connections. Eventually, our servers would, would go down. But in this case, uh, Fastly would be able to lock that for us. So only one request against our servers would generate that JSON file. And in reality, when we were watching this as the event was going, it would allow two, sometimes we would see three requests to leak through, which is absolutely fine. I mean, we we're only going to experience problems when we have hundreds of requests leak through. Uh, but in this case, it was, it was saving us uh, really well. So we're able to provide updates every 15 seconds and do it in a way that was very scalable. And most importantly for us, we didn't have time to engineer other solutions. We needed something that would work very quickly for us. And uh, we really appreciate that that Fastly has. And I know other software can handle that, like Varnish has their, their grace period, um, those sorts of things. But uh, again, we were using Fastly and it just worked really fast and it's easy to build. It was awesome. It was really great. <clears throat> yeah, the third component there was the React front end. And that was something that we, we have not used before. Um, but this seemed like a really great, uh, a great use case for React. In essence, we would fire off the request to see if there was new content. And the totally oversimplified version of this is um, React will do like a diff against the, against the entire DOM. And it'll say, what do we need to update? And it will just update whatever nodes it needs to. And as new content would come in, 
it would just float in and it was just perfect. And it was fast. It just, yeah. not that, not that I think if it was that much slower, like our previous yeah. uh, jQuery implementation, I don't think that you'd be able to look at it and see the difference between the two. Um, but, you know, we, we want to try to be shaving milliseconds wherever we can. And it was something that's very quick for us. And uh, the engineers, well, I guess it was just one engineer that worked that on Ross. that. Ross. He was really excited to use React. And this was an opportunity for us to kind of take a, a little piece of our overall uh, site and use React and just get a sense of how this would work for something for us. And it, 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 was, it was very, very fast to build, yeah. which was great. Absolutely. All right, next up on the news is this amazing GitHub repository called What Happens When? And it says, an attempt to answer the age-old interview question, what happens when you type google.com into your browser and press enter? Now, the simple answer you could say was, well, my browser fires up a network request and it goes and, you know, uh, it does a get and it pulls down all the content from Google. Then the browser starts to render the content and blah, 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 blah. This goes a little more in-depth into it. <laughs> and maybe in-depth is even uh, under, 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 what's the word I'm trying to think of? Under-explaining? Yeah, under-explaining. <laughs> I don't know, it's your word, man. <laughs> uh, so, like, I'll start off here. The G key is pressed. The following section explains all about the physical keyboard and the OS interrupts. But a whole lot happens after that, which isn't explained. When you press G, the browser receives the event, and the entire autocomplete machinery kicks into high gear. Depending on your browser's algorithm, and if you're in a private slash incognito mode or not, various suggestions will be presented to you in the Dropbox below the URL bar. Most of these algorithms prioritize results based on search history and bookmarks. You're going to type google.com, so none of it matters, but a whole lot of code will run before you get there, and the suggestions will be refined with each key press. You may even suggest google.com before you type it. So kind of a fascinating look both into like the computer science-y side of what is happening and also into the network intricacies and into all of the... Yeah, so I mean, th this really struck me because there, there's some fun engineering stuff. Um, but uh, you know, earlier I was saying I had a different career, and it was in psychology <laughs> and um, you know, clinical psychology, as a matter of fact. And this, to me, this question doesn't really tell you a lot about engineering. It tells you a lot about someone's psychology. It tells you a lot about how people um, think about problems, and and even more than that, it probably reveals a lot of personality traits. Uh, it reminds me of a Rorschach test in many ways. <laughs> You're presented with this very ambiguous problem. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm curious, like, do you go into, uh, you know, tons of depth with this? If I were to ask this question, I would ask it. I wouldn't follow up with anything. And I would just see how long someone goes on and on. I mean, if I'm asking this from a psychological <laughs> perspective, I don't think I would ever ask this uh, when I was trying to evaluate any sort of engineering skills. But it would be very good for personality uh, assessment in terms of uh, levels of anxiety that people experience while answering this question. Do they ramble on and on and on? Do they have to feel like, you know, they have to give you the perfect answer, meaning they have to hit every single uh, thing that happens, or are they going to give you a good overview and, you know, uh, just trying to essentially give you the essence of it rather than having to give you every detail? I think it could be fascinating from that perspective, but from an engineering uh, point of view, I, 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 I think it has limited use. Yeah, and that's why 
we have the doctor on our team here. <laughs> but it's cool. I, I, lo- I, I love this repo, and I love the idea of, hey, let's just actually, let's sit here and, and approach this from an engineering perspective together. Like, what are all the things that happen? And there's some fun issues in there where people talk about, like, well, you're only starting at when uh, you press G, but there's a lot of physiological things that go into pressing G, right? <laughs> I mean, you can get into all sorts of... Um, neurological explanations for how you do that, then you can start talking about motivations. I mean, you can go on and on and on forever. Yeah. So I'm really curious to see where this document goes. Yeah, there's 257 commits. Right now there's 48 issues and 16 pull requests. So yeah, it's this is pretty amazing. Um, next up, just some news. Um, Apple announced during a Wednesday night meetup at its Cupertino, California headquarters that the company's popular Siri application is powered by Apache Mesos. Um, this is this came from Mesosphere.com. It said, We at Mesosphere are obviously thrilled about Apple's public validation of the technology on which our data center operating system is based. If Apple trusts Mesos to underpin Siri, a complex application that, ha- that Apple only knows how many voice <laughs> queries per day from hundreds of millions of iPhone and I- iPad users, and iWatch, or I shouldn't say iWatch, I it's an Apple watch. It's going to be so hard to get oh, right. God, right. Uh, that says a lot about how mature Mesos is and how ready it is to make a big impact in companies of all stripes. But there's a bigger picture, too. Companies want what is promised from a cloud computing, but there hasn't yet been a great way to get those things at scale in the cloud or in your own data center. With Mesos, the world has an open source platform that truly delivers on promises, scalability, elasticity, and shared resource pools. What is most interesting to me about this story is not that um, Apple is using Apache Mesos, but that they are announcing that they are using it. Um, it's a really, yeah, you know, Apple for so long has been a very closed, very secretive company, but when they are releasing that they're, you know, backing huge open source projects like this and they're using them and they're going to meetups and talking about how they're using them, that's just fascinating to me. And I think, uh, I don't want to bring out the old tripe, but this would have never happened under Steve Jobs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that seems to be a trend. Even, um, you know, we had the story on, on Wired about the Apple Watch and some of the uh, some of the, the decisions that went into that and, and just the story of how yeah. it, it came to be. Like, I don't remember seeing that for many other products. You know, there's, I think, um, some, some look backs at the, the beginnings of Apple and some of the things that, Steve Jobs needed to do and Steve Wozniak um, had to do and endure to, to make the company what it is. Um, but, you, you know, usually don't get this level of detail on their products. So it's interesting to see for sure. Yeah. On a, on a totally related note, uh, Microsoft's build conferences this week. And the highlight for me is they released uh, what they are coding, <laughs> sorry, what they are calling <laughs> Visual Studio Code. And when I saw this the other day, my mind blew because Visual Studio is now available on a Mac. And it's just totally crazy to me that, and to be clear, this isn't Visual Studio, the Microsoft application. This is a streamlined version of Visual Studio that has dev tools built in for building specifically ASP.NET and Node.js projects. Um, I know a lot of Mac people that are um, ASP.NET developers. Um, if you know Casey Liss, uh, he goes on and on about how great of a dev environment ASP.NET is. And he's a huge Mac guy and a major Windows developer, like Windows like .NET developer. And so it's interesting to me that there is this 
Microsoft today is not Microsoft of 10 years ago, and they're building specific dev tools and entire tool chains for both Mac developers and Linux developers. Like, it's just totally crazy to me. Um, on a related note, there's news also that they want you to be able to build your iOS and Android applications and then be able to cross-compile those to Windows Phone, which is kind of, you know, just more craziness out of Redmond. So hats off to Microsoft. I have played around a little bit with the uh, Microsoft uh, Visual Studio Code. Did you, did you download it, Zach? No, I haven't yet. I'm interested to hear your experiences, it's, um, it's really nice. It's got a sublime texty type interface. Um, and it's really beautiful. It's a great looking application. It's got um, built in linting. It's got built in. I, I've only I played around a little bit with uh, PHP, but it really shines with JavaScript development. And so, playing around, I just opened up one of the JavaScript files that I've been working on. And it tells me I have one error and thirty seven warnings about not using reserved keywords, cannot find name, you know. So it's it's really pretty powerful. It's a it's a great little app. I think. I, I don't know if I'm going to use it a ton right out of the box, but I really like the app. The other thing that it really um, they've tried to tailor to is Git integration. So they've got a lot of Git-specific tools inside of the app, which is uh, which is really kind of fascinating too. It's always exciting to see these companies trying to put out different tools to help developers because uh, you know there, I think there's a pretty high turn rate in these these tools like right now I say sublime text is all the rage but before that I think it was probably textmate, textmate. was huge um, before that yeah and so you know we're gonna see iterations like eventually sublime text will probably go the way of textmate um, and something else to replace it but it's always nice to see that there are iterations here uh, meeting the needs of our ever-changing industry absolutely. Um, last little bit of news, our friends at TenUp, this week they released their engineering best practices documentation. And I really like this um, for a lot of reasons. Um, it takes a lot of work to document all of your best practices. And they've done that in a few different sections of markup, CSS, JavaScript, PHP, structure, tools, um, like uh, different things on task runners, on code dependency, on file organization. Um, and it's a great document. It's all on GitHub. And so, um, you know, I'm sure pull requests would always be welcome. Or forking this project and building your own um, best practices for, for an engineering team. I think this is a great resource. And I'm really happy to see it. Um, at one point, the uh, WordPress VIP team, they had... I don't know if their best practices are open. I think they're locked down, but that was a huge source of like, I really liked it a lot. It was a big help for me. And just seeing somewhere, seeing it documented is really great for, for, a, for a web company like this. Yeah, and I could see this document living on for a while and, and the 10 up team really supporting it. Um, one of the things that they do good there is onboarding people. And I know this is a big part of that process so it'll probably continue to be updated more so than I think the the VIP ones I think that was just a project someone did and yeah. moved on from it so I hope that this is a good thing long term and, and in general I, I think it's really cool when companies contribute to open source by releasing their their you know software whether it's a module plugin whatever it is in the, the language you're working in but it's really really cool when they actually give you some insight into engineering practices 
because uh, it's a document that's really hard to put together. Um, and, you know, I, I guess it maybe gives you some notoriety within your particular field. Um, but it's, it's a pretty, pretty big kind of altruistic thing to put that out there. And, um, you know, lately we've been kind of throwing around internally like the Airbnb uh, JavaScript style guides, you know, yeah. like that, that takes a lot of time for a company to invest that time um, into putting that document together. And I think it's great that they share it with the world. Absolutely. So that's the end of the news. Brings us to our favorite section, which is our Friday faves. Uh, Friday faves are just something that we think is cool, whether it's online, whether it's offline, whether it's it's whatever you want it to be. It's your favorite. So, Zach, do you have something for us today? Yeah, I do. Do I get more than one? You can so have you, as many You said it's Friday faves, right? It's, okay. it's plural. It's definitely plural. Yeah, so I had a list of things, uh, but then yesterday my, my list kind of blew up because <laughs> um, we got a document from Richard Barnes, who is a Firefox security lead. Um, and basically, he declared that they are deprecating non-secure HTTP in Firefox. Um, it's you, know, you can read the article, and I'm sure different people would interpret this differently, but the statements they did make is that they were setting a date uh, after which all new features will only be available to secure websites. So meaning that if they have some fancy new feature, I think a good example of this would be like in Chrome, uh, service workers are only available over secure connections. So these new features that they're going to be launching in, in Firefox will only be available to secure sites. And then they're gradually going to be phasing out uh, previously built features for non-secure sites, um, which is going to obviously be a lot more difficult because they're going to break a lot of the web when they do that. But this is a major step towards a secure web um, and HTTPS everywhere. Um, Google's been making these same sorts of steps, but I don't recall a document quite like this that they've come out and said this so clearly. Um, they've definitely made a lot of statements about um, how, how they're going to downgrade experiences for even sites that are on HTTPS but aren't very secure in terms of their TLS setup. Um, they've already said that HTTP2 is only going to be supported over HTTPS. Um, so I, I really like uh, this direction that we're headed, and it's great to see um, people really step up and take a stand here. Yeah, so for more information about how to move your site to TLS... <laughs> Thanks for the setup there, Jake. Yeah, so Jake and I are actually both going to a conference next week uh, called LoopConf, which is, um, I, would, I would characterize it as a WordPress conference, but uh, the organizers have really pulled in a lot of people from, um, from elsewhere within the greater web community. So it's, it's going to be more of a web conference overall. Uh, and I'm fortunately going to be talking about TLS and how to get it right. How to get it right. I'm excited about it. Um, do I get do I get yeah, do more? Just going, jump right yeah. in, yeah. And so, and so my brain has been in the security <laughs> realm for a little bit, and I really like this article published over on Ars Technica about um, Android apps that are supposedly um, transferring data over HTTPS. So, like, let's say you went to an app, you downloaded it, um, and then you had to sign in. Supposedly, that's a secure experience. What they find is that a lot of these apps were actually vulnerable to man-in-the-middle attacks by just using a fraudulent TLS certificate. So they found that um, 12 apps that were downloaded uh, each millions of times were susceptible to this type of attack. Um, this is a group from the City College of San Francisco that actually found this. The student research is really kind of cool what they were able to find um, and suggested that 
you really need to be careful uh, the data that you hand over to your apps because you don't know if it's actually secure. Um, I think this actually suggests that web is such a great platform because they give you a lot of insight into these sorts of things, but an app can implement um, these uh, basically you, you user experiences, right, um, in any way that they want, and you really don't know what's going on under the hood. Uh, the web kind of gives you a little bit more insight into that, although not all of it's in, in the clear. Um, so I thought this was really interesting to, to see that uh, these apps just aren't as secure as we sometimes might think they are. Right. Awesome. Yeah. And yeah, my final final one is uh, I have to I have to bring up something about hockey because we're <laughs> in the midst of the NHL playoffs. There's a fantastic article published um, it was a little earlier this month um, by a uh, PhD level Harvard statistician. Um, Talking about the so-called like hot hand effect or like having a streak in sports. Apparently, there's been some research into a lot of other sports, baseball, NBA, um, debunking this myth of having a hot hand or being on a streak. But he turned his attention to the NHL, and what he actually found is that in the NHL, people tend to have a negative hot hand effect. Um, such that if you were to, say, score a goal, you tend to, to make a lot worse attempts after scoring that goal. So I, th- I think kind of where he's going with this, it's not proven, but the idea would generally be that if you score that goal, you maybe believe in yourself a little bit more, you have more confidence, you think you're, you're on a hot streak, and then you're just willing to take more shots because they're going to go in, um, but actually found that people tend to do worse after they, they scored. So I love this where, you know, we might have these beliefs or uh, ideas about what's actually going on in the world and someone sits down, looks at the data and debunks them. So that's, that's a really cool article. <clears throat> the obvious, very opposite of that is NBA Jam. My oh, favorite. yeah. Well, that's uh, that's <laughs> science. Fi- that's science, up. He's on fire. <laughs> oh, man. I love that game. I got to play some of that now. Oh, seriously. My Friday fave this week is the Game of Thrones recaps that come out every week on the Wired Entertainment section. Uh, The writing is just my favorite, and I think it's hilarious. And after watching an episode of Game of Thrones, you're always like just kind of blown away with the episode and everything that happens. And so it's my favorite thing the next day to go into work on Monday and read read the recap. Because there's a little bit, they go into the books and kind of the story that's happening in the books. And so mild spoiler alerts. But I'm just going to read this paragraph about what happened to John last week. Um, it says, after much consideration, John gives his answer to Stannis. Even though he spent his entire life dreaming about being John Stark, he can't claim his father's name and help Stannis retake Winterfell because of honor and vows and also honor. Basically, he can't become a Stark because he already is Starking too hard. Stannis, who's been gazing at John like he's the son he never had, leaves with grudging respect after warning John to deal with the wildlings and ship his enemies at Castle Black off to distant frozen places. Um, I've had that line about um, honor and vows and also honor and um, starking too hard. Like that's been in the back of my mind like all week, um, honor, vows, and also honor. Um, so I just love reading the recaps and it's one of my Friday faves this week. Thanks for sharing that, Jake. I've avoided that article like the plague because it took me like three days to watch the episode and I just, I just, uh, it became an instant reaction when I saw that post. I just be like, oh no, no, I need to move. So I'm gonna have to go back and read that. Yeah. Uh, we've been getting, we've been giving Zach a hard time all week about not being caught up on Game of Thrones. So HBO yeah. Go wasn't working for me the other day, <sighs> and and NHL playoffs. So. <laughs> yeah, hashtag NHL. Anyways, um, that's our show for this week. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm Why Is Jake on Twitter. W H Y I S J E K. 
J A K E Y. Why is Jake on Why Twitter? is Jake? Yeah. Why is Jake Why? on Facebook? Why is Jake on GitHub? Uh, where can they find you, Zach? Uh, Tolman Z um, on Twitter and TolmanZ.com on the interwebs. And, and on a related note, um, like Zach said, uh, we will both be at LoopConf in Vegas this next week. And I'll be at the WordPress VIP developer workshop at the beginning of the week. So busy week of conferences next week. We'll see if we can get an episode. Maybe we'll record from Vegas, Zach. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Uh, Thanks for joining us on the WebMonkey podcast, and keep it real. We'll see you next week.